Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today we're speaking to Gideon Haig who is an author and journalist and he's written many books on cricket and history but his latest book is The Brilliant Boy, Doc Evatt and the Great Australian Descent and today we are going to speak about Doc Evatt, aren't we Gideon and who was a contemporary of Robert Menzies? Indeed, he was. He was sort of the uh, the anti Menzies, or the or, or the his, his counterpart, his foil, um, and his nemesis. But uh, two fascinating Australians, two very distinguished Australians, both born in eighteen ninety four, sort of equally eminent on opposite sides of, of politics and and in the law, and in some ways, I think, sort of maybe even defined each other in in contradistinction to the other. Uh, if maybe if Evan hadn't existed, if Menzies would have had to invent him. <laughs> Last night, I just did a, a quick kind of uh, list of all their similarities, and obviously, yes, right. born in exactly the same year. They were both children of of families of not very great means, so they mm-hmm, were brilliant yes. students, and then scholarship boys. Won scholarships to university at a time when you really yes. could only go to university if you were the child of wealthy parents or on a scholarship. Mm -hmm. They were both presidents of their university student unions. Both didn't serve in World War I for different reasons. Both Mm -hmm. became brilliant lawyers, then came up against each other, I I guess for the first time in the incredibly famous and uh, the biggest sort of constitutional Mm -hmm. law case in in the 1920s, the Engineers case, where Menzies prevailed acting for the, um, what was it, the, oh, the, 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 union. The, the union, yes, yes, rather yeah. ironically, both mm. became King's Council, the youngest in their yeah. respective states, mm-hmm. Menzies in Victoria and Evert in New South Wales, at exactly the same mm. age. Yes. Um, Evert pipped Menzies to become a High Court judge, the youngest at 36, but then both were patrons and great lovers of the arts, both served as Attorney mm. General of Australia, both loved cricket. Both loved reading and learning. Both had incredibly close relationships with their wives. And then looking at the Menzies book collection, so we have Menzies Personal Library here at the Robert Menzies Institute at the the Bailey Library at the University of Melbourne. There are seven of Everett's books in that collection and some Everett Mm -hmm. has written inscriptions into Menzies. And, of course, when when Everett died, he predeceased Menzies, I think, by about... um, Oh, 13 years or so. 13 years? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Menzies was one of his, his pallbearers. And uh, I, I did a podcast the other day, Gideon, on the communism referendum. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we were talking about the fact that Everett really only had one, one win over Menzies in his career. He, rather bizarrely, as opposition leader, appeared on behalf of some, uh, some, I think, Communist Party-affiliated unions in mm. the High Court 
to basically plead the case that the Communist Party Dissolution Act that the Menzies government had passed was um, unconstitutional and he won Mm. and he felt it was the biggest and most important battle and I spoke about this with Professor George Williams from the University of New South Wales, constitutional law law professor. But it is, it's it's an incredible story of two huge figures who had so much in common but were, of course you know, complete nemeses of each other. And you've written beautifully about or an aspect of Evett's career, of course, his, um, when he was a judge and uh, the decision he, he handed down, a dissenting decision in a very, very tragic case, one of the t- leading tort cases that uh, I, mm. I learned about here, probably in this building in the old quad at Melbourne University. <laughs> yeah. But, but Gideon, I thought I'd start our conversation by talking about how Everett, Everett had a tough start in life, a pretty tragic mm-hmm. family history, losing his father and his, his brothers. How do you think that affected his, his worldview? Well, I think, yeah, we're talking about a very, very, very different time in Australia. It's a, it's a pre-antibiotic era. It's an era that encompasses two world wars. I think everyone grew up with a greater or lesser sense of their own mortality. Um, as you say, four of... Evett's brothers were gone by his mid-twenties. His father died when he was six and his mother also died in the, in the early 1920s. I think um, someone who's grown up under those circumstances is entitled to a, to a sense of the precariousness of, of, of human life and also the preciousness of children. And there's no doubt that one of Evett's chief characteristics was a great sentimentality and uh, and great protectiveness of children. He certainly showed it towards his own children, both of, both of whom were adopted. But he, um, as uh, his uh, long-time associate John Brennan said, he, he loved nothing more than watching children at play. He found them fascinating. He found them very endearing. He found their characteristics fascinating to observe. In some respects, if you wanted a... Uh, a judge to be deliberating on a on an important tort case involving the traumatic loss of a child, Evett is exactly the judge that you would that you would call for if you were if you were the plaintiff. It's extraordinary to um to reflect on on how he he would have coped with all those tragedies. And then, you know, in reading your book you're you're painting a picture of of someone who in a lot of respects could have become quite you know, quite a conservative figure, and uh, and mm. and I, I um was interested to read in your book that that people were quite surprised when he joined the Labor Party and yeah. said he wanted yeah. to be a Labor a Labor politician. Um, they you know they, he could have quite equally been um, a member of um, well at the time it would have been the the Nationalists, wouldn't it? Yes, it, yeah. you know it, he he wasn't a natu- naturally you know. It wasn't from a union background. Clearly, uh, he wasn't obviously a, from a from a family of you know affluence. But he but his no. his worldview was as a as a small L liberal, wasn't it? Fundamentally, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's a very different time to ours, of course. And in some respects, Everett is quite conservative by by modern lights. You know, he was a believer in the white Australia policy. He believed in, uh, he wasn't a Republican, believed unstintingly in Australia's connection to, uh, to, to the Crown. A lot of things that, um, that are sort of what we regard as key left-wing concerns now, Everett was completely unacquainted with and, and uninterested. 
there was actually lots of common ground between uh, between Menzies and Everett, as you say. You know, both lovers of learning, both lovers of literature. You know, quite traditional in their uh, in their educational attainments. So perhaps it was perhaps it was the fact that you know once one of them was on one side of the politics, there was no room for the other one in the same place. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if that, that is the case. Was the first time they met um, in the engineers' case? Do you do you think, or would they have come come across each other before that? They were obviously both greatly successful barristers, but they were very young when yeah. they started appearing in the High Court. Yeah, they were, of course. And one was in Melbourne, and one was in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And the and the and the circles of uh, of, of law in in both those um, cities were were very very tight knit. One of the things that does strike you when you write about this period, though, is that everyone knows everybody else. Yes, Australia was you know, a small country. The circles country. of influence in Australia, very small, very small, and constantly meeting, constantly overlapping, constantly working in different areas but coming up against the same people. You know, the fact that, that Menzies and, and Everett were both interested in art introduced them to circles of, uh, of artists and, and creative people who you wouldn't necessarily have access to now if you were a high court judge or or an eminent politician. No, it's uh, it it's it is really interesting how the sort of I guess elite in Australia, be it from business, politics, law, were were constantly engaging with each other and influencing each other. I mean, I found it really interesting in your book that you're talking about how all these eminent lawyers had such an impact on Australia's policy development yes. and were so well known in Australia for their contribution mm. to the to the development of ideas in Australia where uh, I think in sort of contemporary life most people wouldn't have a clue who's at, who are the eminent barristers who are the you mm. know who are the judges mm. of the land they just wouldn't you know wouldn't wouldn't make the news it wouldn't make the papers uh, I mean it, you know we're obviously a country of, of many many times um, more population. I was going to say a key character they had in common was Owen Dixon, yeah. Because Owen Dixon was Menzies' hero, his legal hero, his kind of bellwether of, uh, of 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 lawyers, and he was also Everett's colleague, most admired colleague on the on the High Court bench. It was fascinating that that Dixon could get on so well with with work so productively with uh, both men, but he was a man of a very secure sense of his own importance, Dixon, at the same time. So it was, I think he, he probably quite enjoyed that the two of the, those individuals naturally deferred to him. Yeah, yes, I, I'm, I'm sure he did. And, of course, um, uh, then Justice Dixon was on the High Court when the communism case came before him. Um, <laughs> yes. Where, yeah. obviously, Menzies is Prime Minister wanting the, the, the mm. legislation to be upheld by the High Court and, and Everett as opposition leader and as the lead counsel for, for some of the unions mm. um, appealing for its... Um, declaration as invalid and so again that would have been a a very very interesting uh sort of grouping of three very influential people and significant legal minds um coming together and clashing over what would have been the biggest issue of the day yeah at least stark and rich had moved on by that stage Hayden Stark and George Rich apparently stayed on the High Court for long enough merely to prevent Everett replacing them as Attorney General. (laughs) 
he was a figure, and like Menzies, I'm sure, who um, who divided opinion, didn't he? Mm, yeah. He didn't have the um, natural charm of, of Curtin. Uh, he was pretty critical of Curtin, wasn't he? But obviously a, a, a massive intellect. You write about him being one of the sort of um, smartest people in the land, the smartest people in the law. Mm. And what a gift to Australia that people like Everton Menzies gave, gave up so much of their life to public service. Yes, yes yeah. I think the, one of the interesting things about a country like Australia is that it's so young that lots of things have to be done for the first time. Yes. And both Menzies yes. and, and Everett were, could, could see that, that need, understood the importance of the mechanics of sort of social maturation. In some respects, Australia is better off for having the both of them. Mm. to act as kind of, uh, uh, you know, striking sparks off one another through the relevant period. Yeah, both committed to the nation-building project of Australia, I think, um, you know, obviously coming at it from different perspectives, but mm. also similar perspectives too. I wondered if we could talk about Everett's journey to the High Court, amazing mm. at the age of 36 to be appointed to mm. the High Court. He hasn't been outdone in terms of his youth, has he? No, he hasn't, that, no. And, it, and I don't think he ever will be now. What were the sort of qualities of uh, that Everett um, embodied that enabled him to, to rise so quickly to the High Court, do you think, Gideon? Well, of course, it's a much smaller bar in those days, isn't it? I think there are only 600 barristers or something in Sydney at the time that, uh, that Everett went to the bar, so it was, it was easier to stand out. You were able to handle very important cases very young. That's why both Menzies and, uh, and Everett end up appearing in, uh, in, in Engineers. It's also a period when... Pleadings are becoming more important in the law and the role of adept junior counsel is becoming more significant. So Everett and Mendes were both able to achieve note early on by being just having an intellectual bandwidth that maybe some of the older lawyers, some of the actual silks at the bench were un- unable to uh, achieve. I think the um, other thing is that Everett chose high-profile cases in which to appear. You know, he um, he was involved in the Irish Envoys case. He was involved in the Walsh and Johnson deportation case. He identified with certain issues, and he understood that they were they were important issues of principle to uh, to, to be fought. But he also understood that they were the kind of cases that naturally achieved note. And he was an exceedingly ambitious man. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Everett never saw a job to which he didn't immediately think himself the best suited person. And he also wasn't shy about, you know, <laughs> letting people know that. He was, um, yeah, there was a certain, there's a certain naivety uh, and, and a bumptiousness about, about Everett. Doesn't really understand the sensitivities of others, alienates others. And it's a, it's a, it's a characteristic that grows worse as, a, as, as he gets older. Menzies had it in a certain degree, but Menzies also had that kind of that surface affability, and that he did have an understanding of uh, of, of what motivated others and an ability to uh, to to argue out principles. The other thing is, there's really no on the labour side of politics. Once Everett goes into it, he has no natural intellectual kin. As you say, he's not a man from a trade union background. He's not a man with working class roots. He's a man who's arrived at his political leanings by intellectual processes, not by birth or uh, or, or occupation, uh, and that makes him a bit of a one out on yeah. that on that side. It leaves him short of the capacities necessary to uh, create um, 
alliances, uh, to build consensuses, and to and to manage a, a, a party room, a notoriously febrile party room in uh, in, in Labor's case. Yeah, and he he famously falls out, doesn't he, with with Jack Lang, uh, and then has to run when he's in in state politics, and has to run as a independent Labor candidate. Uh, I mean, he's he doesn't necessarily have a lot of fellow travellers in the Labor movement. He's sort of intellectual. Well, not a Jack Lang. No, <laughs> After no, a while. no, but, no. no. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't make him unique falling out with Jack Lang. Yeah. Just about everyone. Which, which maybe is but, uh, you know a feather in his cap, really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, he was on the right side of history. Yes, indeed, indeed. A lot of the the adjectives you were using to describe Evett, um, you know, his his sort of enormous self confidence, his his difficulty getting on with with others, um, mm. and and I guess a, an arrogance that he always considered himself the best person for the job. Mm. It, yeah. It's very much a description of of the younger Menzies. Menzies. Um, benefited hugely, in my view, from being forced to to resign the the leadership and prime ministership in forty one, mm. and those mm. periods in the wilderness, um, like for other leaders too, or fallen leaders, when they come back, they're they're better for it. Mm. You know, ability to sort of moderate his natural tendencies to to tick mm. off others, and I mean, I think there still still was that in Menzies Mark too, but. Um, he he learned the the value of the backbench, the value of a coalition partner, and how to work those relationships to his advantage. And of course, that that art of persuasion uh, that he was so adept at came from a lot about you know being able to build those sort of common bonds mm. of trust with mm. everyday Australians and being able to kind of yeah. really articulate what was resonating in in the sort of kitchens and shops and churches and town halls mm. across Australia, which was perhaps not some th- a quality that Everett ever, ever, uh, ever developed throughout his career. Never, n- Well, never having to, to rise to the, the prime ministership in the end, he, he kept being thwarted by Menzies. <laughs> well, certain aspects of the law certainly suited Everett's mind or, or his, his approach, that kind of... The, the the role of the individual virtuoso, the capacity to, to the the, free, the gravitation towards the freelance lifestyle, the belief in a compelling idea, and 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 the capacity to articulate it, uh, the capacity to go off on on your own basically, none of which were useful for him in in, in politics. No, despite perhaps I think his occasional inability to understand that. One of the times when. Um Menzies and Everett would have come up against each other um, intellectually was the Egon Kish case, of course, um, mm-hmm. the yeah. case of the yeah. Czech communist activist who yes. was attempting yep. or indeed visit Australia. Uh, Menzies was Attorney General at the time in the Lyons government in the 30s mm. and attempted to block Egon Kish from mm. visiting Australia. Um, Egon Kish and his his supporters appealed this, and Everett was on the High Court at the time, wasn't he? These battles over communism are such mm. a feature of the Everett Everett v Menzies story, aren't they? Egon Kish case, and then on to the Communist Party dissolution bill, and then of course the the referendum on communism, and then all that flowed from that, the Petrov affair. 
and uh, mm. and then you know really the Menzies sort of eviscerating Evert on the floor of Parliament and and you know over over communism and the really the kind of crumbling of of Evert all came down to the issue of communism in the well the thirties forties and fifties. Well, I, th- I think it, it more properly comes down to the idea of the idea of a freedom of of uh, political expression. You know, one of the things that one of the obsessions that that Everett had, one of his slogans that he constantly repeated was this line from 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 Milton: "Let truth and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth to be put to worse in an open encounter?" Um, he believed that um, it, it was often, I think, mistaken for an indulgence of, of communism. That he uh, that he believed that communism should be able to compete in the public square of ideas, uh, and that. Yeah, it's it's prevention or it's uh, or it's uh, illegality or it's stifling um, was not something that uh, that a country like Australia should should be party to. I think that part of Evert was a, was naive about communism. That's for sure. Certainly, it's um, it's it's Soviet variant. Mm. But I think he also uh, he loved this idea, and it, once again, it goes back to this his his lawyer's mentality, the idea that you would hear from both sides of an argument and that eventually the deliberative mechanism or the individual would make a decision based on how convincing that that argument was. Politics doesn't often work that way, but the law does. So in some respects, it was, a, it was, a, it was another naivety of, of Evitz that he expected this principle of the law to be transposed immediately into, uh, into politics. Yeah, indeed. But also, you know, we you have to give him credit for um the the campaign that he he and others waged in the communism referendum. I think it that when it was first announced that there would be a communism referendum, there was something like 80% support for yeah, changing yeah. the com- constitution and this was championed by Menzies, of course. And Evert among others campaigned no. And I mean, look, Australian refer- the history of Australia and referendums is such that it's almost certain that it will be a no yeah, vote. Yeah. So maybe he was always going to win. Um, but but you know, it, it was line ball in the end. I think it was something like you know fifty one forty nine. It was really really line yeah. ball in terms of the the popular vote. But but that must have been you know showing at least in that issue that Evert was adept in the art of persuading an enormous portion of that population to change their mind from the initial polling results and and even people who completely opposed communism you know, I think um, my grandmother for example was uh, would have always yeah. been a liberal voter um, she was married to a liberal MP uh, but she she voted no my grandfather voted yes to change the constitution but, but she she voted no uh, there you go um, and her husband was even in the Menzies Parliament and uh, ministry at the time. So, you know. What a great country this is, Georgina. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, and look, I think, you know, history will, will show it was the best outcome for the country. We're a, we're a mm. free country. We shouldn't ban political parties or political ideologies. It should be the, the, the you know, battle of ideas that is played out on mm. the street and in the media and the wherever yeah. uh, and let, let the people decide. But became an a sort of obsession for Everton, and obviously, mm, you know, yeah. didn't realise the longer term consequences for his reputation and what he would be associated with mm. in in Australia, and and then of course his his undoing in the end. Um, I well, want- could not have foreseen the valences of the Cold War. 
Yes. I, I think that's one of the great challenges of writing books about his historical books and biographies is that you have to, uh, although life can only be understood backwards, it has to be lived forwards. You yes. actually have to be able to place yourself in the position of these people as they're making the decisions without any cons- without any understanding of, of, of the way in which the future is going to unfold. Um, it's kind of, and, and in some respects, the brilliant boy because it does concentrate on Everett in this period, this sort of peak Everett period of the, of the 1930s up up to his his, his going back into uh, into politics. Uh, it's kind of fascinating, I, even though I know what happens um, when I went when I went to read it. It was it, somehow it was it was quite compelling if you sort of stood alongside Everett and, and scanned the horizon of the future, hopefully um, with, you know, with expectations of Australia and, uh, and a belief in the power of ideas, you could actually feel that, um, that what he was accomplishing was quite inspirational. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a challenge for, especially, you know, here we're at the Robert Menzies Institute where we, um, you know, exist to, to generate debate and discussion on, on a, figure of the past, um, very, very significant figure in Australia's history who made decisions that, you know, were of their time and some of them have had enduring, you know, positive impacts. Some, some look, you know, history will judge were wrong or um, could have been done better. But do you judge past historical figures on the value, with the values of today and condemn them where they fall foul of the values of, of 2021. Incredibly challenging and, I mean, something that, of course, is um, the subject of many debates here on uh, a university campus <laughs> With when we, you know, yes, yeah, <laughs> look at yeah. all the sort of issues of tearing down statues and monuments. Mm. You've got to question the benefit of that when you then tear down the reminders of, of what, what went well but also what went badly and, and all in between. I think it's important to remember these people um, and, uh, you know, statues, memorials, libraries, museums, they don't necessarily have to be about, you know, a hageography. It's, it's mm. a, you know, a, a moment to have that discussion and reflection. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think it's interesting to have... To, to read the biographies of the figures that we're talking about over time. You know, the first the first Everett biography was written back in 1970 by Kylie Tennant. It's a very different book to the to the John Murphy book that was published four or five years ago, and a, and a different book again to, to the book that I've written. I think the same goes for the for the Menzies books, the early Menzies books. I suppose the instant stuff like the. Um, Kevin Perkins' book and uh, the Cameron Hazelhurst book—they're very different to the to the Martin book and and to Judith Breath book, Breath's book and 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 now to um to uh, Troy Bramston's book. Uh, every generation feels the need to reinterpret its historical figures mm. according to the the, um, the imperatives of the of the moment, but the best of them are always capable of trying to walk alongside their character and and judge the choices that they made in the in the context of their times. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's why that they are endlessly interesting. You can you know can read yeah. a biography of Menzies and you know the you know know the facts and figures, sure, the key <laughs> events. But it's it's at what point in time was that written and and what does that reflect mm. about the, well the views of the author but also what's going on in the in the world at that time that influences the interpretation mm. of that figure of the past. Um Gideon, I wanted to to go to um, the 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 court case that that Everett 
um, mm. Everett Heard as a as a High Court judge, Chester and Waverley Council. Mm. That you know is the focus of um, of your wonderful book, um, a tragic case. You know, if you'd like to talk through some of the facts of the case, I think that would be really sure. interesting for our yeah. listeners. But then I also wanted you to tell us. What does what does Chester and Waverley Council tell us about Australian society at the time? I think there is so much we we need to reflect on of about about what was going on in Australia at that period. Yeah, look, it's a very the, the circumstances of the case are very tragic and and very easily imagined. Um, it's, it's it was a Saturday afternoon in in August nineteen thirty seven. Uh, it was a working class suburb of of, of Waverley in, in in New South Wales, a little sort of suburban enclave. Kids went running into the street to play uh, out from under their parents' supervision. There were three children in the Chester family. They were recently arrived uh, Polish emigre Jews, originally called Sokoczewski. That anglicised their their names. There was 15-year-old Benny, there was 12-year-old Rose, and there was 7-year-old Maxie. The two older siblings went off to the movies and left their uh, their younger sibling to, to fend for himself. They came back in the afternoon, but but he did not. Uh, there was a sort of a house to house search in the in the neighbourhood, as as often happens when a when a child goes missing. Eventually, the search concentrated itself around a, a trench that had been dug on the on the corner of Allen's Parade by some council workers to to put a, a PMG conduit down. Uh, it had filled with water the previous week from uh, from a heavy rain, and kids had been observed earlier in the day jumping from side to side um, because it was it was not adequately fenced off. And the police eventually turned up, and Maxie's body was fished from uh, from uh, the bottom of the trench. The mother, um, Golda Chester, saw it happening, so saw her son's body being uh, being extracted from the from the depths. She didn't have a cause of action or immediately obvious cause of action because in those days, uh, under what was called the Compensation for Relatives Act in New South Wales, you could only sue for financial loss in the in the event of the loss of a child. And Maxie being seven was not working, so that so the family had financially given up nothing. Uh, Abe Lander, who was a um, sort of a pioneering solicitor in the in the area of, uh, of of workers' compensation, seized on the idea of taking an action, seeking compensation for the nervous shock that Golda Chester experienced from seeing her child's body on on the, on the on the day in question. Her trauma, if you like, in that sense, it's a very modern case. You know, we we call it trauma now. Back in those days, we called it nervous shock. It's kind of a quaint, old-fashioned term. It actually originates in the middle of the 19th century. But uh, but we still actually talk about nervous shock cases these days. You know, the law doesn't change readily. No. And the law didn't change in this place either because, um, because once the case got to the High Court, the majority decided that she uh, had no case. She didn't deserve any compensation. It was only Everett who said that, you know what, I actually think that she does uh, and for these reasons. Uh, and he gives a very, very compelling uh, judgment, not only very elegantly written, but very, very rigorously argued. Uh, I don't think there's any sense that, um, as is sometimes said of judges, that he's let the the head give in to the heart. Uh, it's It's an empathic judgment for sure, but it's also an extremely clever judgment. Mm. Mm. You know, I, you know, I didn't do law, unlike you. I, uh, so I've, you know, I, 
and I sort of had to school myself in torts in, in order to, to, to do this book. I just came away from it thinking, boy, oh, boy, that's really smart. You know? yeah. uh, I really like the way this guy's mind thinks. And I'd always been interested in Ebert. You know, I've read all the biographies. I'm quite interested in political history. I'd never been able to sort of put my finger on why he was so admired because I was looking at his career backwards. Mm. Like a lot of people, I had looked at his, I knew him primarily as an opposition leader in the 1950s where he'd been Menzies' hapless punching bag. Yeah. I could never quite understand what people had seen in Doc Everett in the first place. Anyway, when I read The Descent, I thought, this explains it. This explains it because this is a very high-quality mind at work towards a, a, a just outcome. And it's a... And in jurisprudential terms, it's really pretty remarkable in Australia. So uh, I thought once I read it, I thought, ah, okay, I've got an aperture through which to view Everett in a new light. Uh, I can kind of, uh, I've found an entry point and from there I I can kind of work outwards. Well, I think an incredibly clever way of looking at a figure that is, for, well, at least for political history junkies in Australia, he's a familiar figure. But, but as you said, he, you you are you've opened up a part of his his life that is um, underexamined, and uh, and you've actually shone a light on on probably his most brilliant side. And mm. and if you mm. are an Everett fan, it 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 surely is one of the things he should be most remembered for is being a brilliant legal mind, being someone who was deeply committed to that sense of justice um, for the for the mother, but also obviously terribly caring of, of, of children. I mean, in this case, we're talking about a, a child who lost his life, but, but the impact that that has on, on the family and, and the broader community. Uh, and look, he had the dissenting uh, judgment in this case, but his... Judgment was subsequently uh, in, I think, was it the 1980s? Was it was it actually yes. in the end adopted by the by the High Court and and became the Jens versus Coffee in 1984. Thank you. The other interesting thing, Georgina, <laughs> is that it does express something about Everett's belief in Australia. Yeah, his idea yeah. that we did not simply have to be a subsidiary of empire. We didn't have to wait for other jurisdictions to make decisions in important areas of the law. This was a case where Australia, as a new country, as a relatively new country, could take a lead, could yeah. actually be original. And this was, this was, you know, the huge size of Everett's ego is that he did see himself on par with the great jurists of, of Britain and, and the United States and saw no reason why he should not be an original thinker mm. in this area. If that was what his peers were doing overseas, then why shouldn't he? Yeah, I think that's a that's a, f- a fascinating perspective, and um, and and look, you know, and when you think of his career, I mean, being president of the United Nations General mm. Assembly, he became yeah. a figure not not least in in jurisprudential terms, but in in international politics and in international affairs, he became yeah. a significant figure, like like yes. Menzies did. So, um, you know, there's that that sense that. Australia, it's a young country, part of the British Empire, part of the you know, Commonwealth of Nations. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of, I guess, derivative part of Australia's story in that we're derivative of, mm. of Britain. But, but this was Australian 
people, Australian nationals, going out and and making an impact on the world stage, be it in common law, be it in international affairs, and uh, and look, you know, that's that's um, incredibly important for the for the story of Australia's development as a modern nation um, on the international stage. I think also, also one other thing is one of the interesting things he uses two he uses decisions by two jurists that he really admired in the case. He uses the Donahue versus Stevenson oh, yes. judgment by Lord Atkin yes. yeah, in, 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 yeah, in an Anglo-Australian yeah. um, with with whom he'd been in um, in in regular contact, and Benjamin Cardozo um, in Wagner versus International Railways. Mm. He'd been to uh, to America in and Britain in 1938. He'd sort of hung around with the great jurists and, and leading political figures of, of those two countries. It, it, for, it's almost as though from Everett's perspective, we can have the best of both worlds here. Mm. We can choose from Britain. We can choose from America. We can be our own, we can be our own, own selves here. We're, you know, we're, we're nation building and we don't simply have to, to follow in any particular um, footsteps. We can choose the best of everything. I think that's a, a lovely way of, of encapsulating what Australia was, was aspiring to mm. be at, at yes. the time. And, uh, you know, Australian society was, uh, was, was going through enormous changes at that time. I mean, still does, mm. I guess. But it been you know, really dramatic changes. And uh, trying to carve out its own identity too, um, yes. dif- you know, separate to Britain, separate... Well, to the United States, where we didn't quite have the same, obviously, bonds of history. But, you know, that was a, you know, we have our own particular geographic position too. So we're carving out this very unique identity for ourselves through all these different avenues, which is really important for, for where we are today. It's interesting, Gideon, uh, to reflect on the fact that Everett sort of went from um, law to politics, law to politics, um, so mm. fluidly. Uh, we, we almost don't see that at all, and you can't you can't even imagine in a contemporary context uh, one of the judges on the High Court these days deciding no. I'm going to resign mm. and now go mm. into federal politics and not just go into federal politics, become a opposition leader for nine years. What, what, was that considered appropriate at the time? I mean, you know, the High Court is, of course, right. supposed to... Well, the judiciary in Australia is supposed to be independent and impartial and you know, it's not supposed to be a, an inclination of a political persuasion at all. Um, that would question, of course, the independence of the judiciary, mm. which is absolutely fundamental to Australian democracy. But but tell, tell me, what are your reflections on this, on Everett's transition from High well, Court judge to politics? Well, when we when we say that he transitioned, he actually, you know, in the early part of his career, he didn't transition at all. You know, he continued to be a KC <laughs> while he was a New South Wales parliamentarian. Well, as did Menzies. Uh, as did Menzies. Yeah, and and, and they he were, was, you know, yeah. and, the, and people actually thought that was a good idea. Yeah. Who wanted, to, you know, well, the idea of actually paying for politicians. How extraordinary that they could do it professionally. Didn't Everett? Uh, um, he he actually opposed a move to change sitting hours from. The That's evening right. to the daytime, because right. that would have interfered exactly. with his career yeah. at the bar. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. Yeah. So um, it, it, it does say something about our relationship to politicians in this country, that those things uh, bided for such a long period. Abe Lander, too, uh, who was the solicitor in Chester's case, I don't think gave up his legal practice until he'd been in Parliament for 15 years. 
He continued to be one of Sydney's leading workers' compensation lawyers, even while he was a Labor politician in, uh, in, in New South Wales. So, yeah, look, there are all sorts of things that we, that we look upon askance from our, from our <laughs> current vantage, thinking, of course, that we're doing it. We're, we've got it right now. You know, we've got it sorted. <laughs> but uh, but there were kind of there were reasons and there were there were understandings and uh, and I think providing everyone knew what everyone else was doing and the and the and the rules were the same for everyone then there wasn't much imperative to change it. Mm, mm. Um, I wanted to finish off our discussion, Gideon, by um, asking you to reflect on how you think Evert should be remembered as uh, obviously a significant jurist, an incredible legal intellect, um, you know, one of Australia's most important figures in the development of the United Nations, an opposition leader for nine years, incredibly important figure in the um, mm. Labor Party history. Obviously, he's championing of um, you know, fr- freedom of association and free speech in Australia through his work mm. on the communism issue. I mean, there's lots of things, but, but what, what do you think are the things he should be most remembered for? Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about about Evert and Menzies is that in 1944-45, when they were about 40 years old, which of them would you have said at the time was likely to be the more distinguished Australian? At that stage, Menzies is languishing in the political wilderness. He's had one unsuccessful premiership and his, his reputation has is is being restored, but but not quickly. Mm. Everett, Everett looks as though you know he's one step short of the prime ministership. He is a man who has done nothing but advance. He's never really had a setback in his life. Every everything he's he's taken, apart from probably that abortive stint in New South Wales politics, has has been a success for him. He looks like the man of destiny, Everett, in in nineteen forty five. So I guess in that sense, you know, he's their respective tales, Menzies and Everett, are uh, injunctions never to take anything for granted and never to give up yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because things can change. You know, the times the times will suit you, uh, in, yes. uh, as, as, as John once said. I think the, the way to remember him now, and I would do it in a broad brush way, is to say he was just an incredibly clever Australian, you know, and, and we don't really respect cleverness in this country as much as we should. We like bravery. We like innovation. We like success in sports, success in culture. But people who distinguish themselves just sheerly by mental bandwidth are rare. In fact, we are a bit suspicious of cleverness in Australia. We think it's a little bit effete, a little bit frivolous. Yes. Um, We hammer away at things like... We're pragmatic and we're authentic. That's the, that's part of the argo of, uh, of of modern politics. I don't think Everett would ever have used those descriptions of himself, and and probably no one would have attached pragmatic to him. He was highly idealistic. Yes, and it would never occurred to him to call himself authentic. Well, of course he was authentic. Yeah. In fact, anyone who has to say that they're authentic is automatically is inauthentic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I like I like the fact that that Everett kind of points to a different way to be Australian, an unusual way, to, a, a defiantly independent way to be Australian, just by being clever. And in in Everett's case, 
he always he loved using the word just. Yeah. He loved the idea of just, not legal, just. And in the and in Chester's case, what he's saying is, okay, I'm going to start from what I think is a just conclusion, mm. and I'm going to work backwards through the law. I'm going to use the law to to engender a uh, a, a just outcome. That's creative. That's actually creative. Mm. Um, that's not just grinding the gears of law. That's actually using your imagination um, and and your and your breadth of vision to uh, to, to make a to better a, a better country. He offers a kind of Australianness that we don't often honour, and maybe that's one of the reasons why we haven't honoured him as much as we could. He's kind of an Australian sui generis. Mm. So uh, so yeah. I, I, he just—he actually gave me a, a a way of looking at Australia where I saw our kind of strengths and weaknesses. He was in an embodiment of both. Yes, yes. Uh, what a what an extraordinary tale! And and thank you, Gideon Haig, for writing this book. I think it's a real gift to our <laughs> nation to to understand uh, a really well an important personality. Um, someone, of course, from the Robert Menzies Institute's perspective, someone who's incredibly important to the story of, of, mm. of modern Australia and, and, and me- the Menzies era. And, um, and you've written it so beautifully. So it's been a pleasure to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast. And, thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for your interest. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.